Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about how poetry provides perspective. You can now hear inappropriate conversations on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. On-demand news, talk, and more on your mobile phone. The latest episode is always available for you, no syncing needed, and no memory or storage wasted. It's available on your iPhone, iPad, Android phones, and beyond. Downloading is easy. Go to Stitcher.com or check out your app store. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. As I do... My listener stats show that I've been a Stitcher Smart Radio listener here recently of programs like Anomaly, Masters of None, Take Him With You, and Greetings from Nowhere. A little bit more about Greetings from Nowhere later in the show. This is the second of what I would call a poetry podcast. The first one, back in early December of just last year, was episode 75, Reason But No Rhyme to Poetry. And this time, instead of talking about the form and the format and how much I love breaking that form and format, I want to instead talk more about the content and the fact that poetry is not something esoteric and distant. It's not an ancient form of communication. It's not an example, a representation of a dead language. Instead, a well-written poem can have resonance and meaning for not just personal topics, like the one that I shared in that previous podcast from T.R. Hummer, Inner Ear, but also can speak to the issues that are really, that really cut to the core of what I'm trying to do in inappropriate conversations. It's helpful from time to time to reset the mission statement of this show. You can now see this mission statement for yourself, not just by going to the Podbean site at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, but I've finally taken the step of setting up a regular website for the show at www.inappropriateconversations.org.org. There you'll see this. Too often, political and or religious ideologies stop open dialogue. It's time to speak freely and break down the barriers that keep people separated. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about, well, lots of things. 93 and counting. The idea is to say this notion that certain things shouldn't be spoken about in public or shouldn't be raised at the dinner table, this idea that we shouldn't be speaking about issues political or religious or sexual in nature. And we have to be very careful on questions of pop culture, maybe even suspicious of people who would decide to speak openly about things like art. Well, I think it's about time that we realize that our society has had great damage done to it. And to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, at least as Americans, who are we? We are the kind of people who went to bars, pubs, and restaurants in colonial time and heard people like Thomas Paine and fans of his book Common Sense reading that politically incendiary document as a form of entertainment and social engagement in the public sphere. Talk about bringing up politics and religion at the dinner table. That was bringing up politics and religion at the pub, at the bar and grill. 
That is who we are as Americans, serious people who speak seriously about serious issues and who in some ways changed the political landscape of the entire world because of it. So no, I think that inappropriate conversations from a you know, .org perspective, less than as a commercial venture, is all about the cause, as I've identified it on Facebook, of breaking down these barriers and forcing us to look face-to-face with the complexity of these issues outside of the simple platitudes that you almost incessantly hear whenever these things are brought up in the public square. And by public square, I mean CNN or Fox or MSNBC or even the pages of most of the local newspapers. Now, in some ways, the real insights into key issues come not from the UPI stylebook or the AP stylebook or any other form of controlled, fair and balanced communication, even where the terms fair and balanced aren't meant to be taken seriously. No, I think sometimes you've got to step all the way out of fiction completely and go in another route. Here's one of the things that I mean when I talk about the concept of poetry being able to speak in direct and profound ways to the political process. I want to start by a combination of quotation and paraphrase to one of my favorite politically oriented poems of all time, William S. Burroughs' Old Man Bickford. The first time I heard this, before I read it, I heard it, was in his own voice. And just for fun, because it's the way I hear it when I read this poem, I'm going to start with my own haphazard imitation of his voice. Old Man Bickford. Cattle, oil, real estate. He's one of the poker-playing, whiskey-drinking, evil old men who run the United States of America. To these backstage operators, presidents, cabinet ministers, and ambassadors are his jokes and errand boys. They do what they're told to do or else. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. But the poem Old Man Bickford is literally about one of these hopefully fictional, behind-the-scenes operators who seem to have the puppet strings of our country well in the control of their hands. And it deals, on the personal level, with a subordinate, with someone named Jess Sanford. Jess Sanford knows he's in trouble when the old man steers him into a side room with one chair. The old man sits down and smiles. You know, Jess, I have an intuition about you. I think you'd make a mighty fine president. Jess turns pale. He is hearing his death warrant. Oh, no, Mr. Bickford, I'm, I don't have the qualifications. Bickford goes on to tell him that he thinks he does have the qualifications, particularly having a good front, a good face, and a very big mouth. Now Jess knows he talked too much in the wrong place at the wrong time. Please, Mr. Bickford, I have a bad heart, and the job would kill me. Bickford's smile widens. Think about it, Jess. Just think about it. I wouldn't want to see you make a mistake. If you were to raise this point of view on the evening news, you know, that you'd have to have a lot of proof. This is, uh, lacks a certain journalistic integrity. But maybe journalistic integrity is not the most important thing we need to tap into to get to the bottom of the issues that are facing us. We have a political system today where money talks, where the Supreme Court, which has been appointed by people who were elected by what I might call the big money, 
have agreed that the people who are the providers of that big money, whether they be political action committees or corporations or the extremely wealthy individual, are all citizens. I would say that of all those, the only one, in my opinion, that is a citizen of the United States of America is that last one, providing, of course, that that extremely wealthy individual actually is a citizen of the United States of America. So in a political system where our Congress and our presidents, including the current president and the Supreme Court and many of the subordinate courts, all seem to agree that money is talk and that corporations are people and that if you have enough money from enough corporations, you can almost buy an election. Well, then we really are in the territory of old man Bickford. We just don't have the honesty to confront it directly in our current method of doing news commentary. I'd rather hear somebody confront that issue with verse, if that's the only way that it can be raised. And my hat's off to William S. Burroughs for producing really a succinct and effective political commentary in the form of poetry. I don't tend to take my own personal poetry in the political direction all that often. Because I like using lots of words, and I'm comfortable with both prose and essay forms, I'm more likely to express political ideas in that sort of freehand manner. But every now and then I'll get keyed up. I remember many years ago writing a poem that I called Words Per Minute. I was breaking in a new typewriter, or perhaps I was maybe all the way up to computer by this stage, not sure, and was going through the writing exercises, you know, trying to get used to the keyboard, trying to maximize my, uh, my speed with this keyboard, doing things like uh, typing up the classic sentence for typists anyway. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party. It's somewhat like the other idea, uh, a quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Both of those sentences are designed to exercise a typist's skill and ability. And they're the kind of sentences that you might get in, a, in an exercise if you were taking what I would call a typing test to demonstrate that you have a good accuracy at an appropriate number of words per minute. In other words, you're a skilled professional typist. When I was in high school, one of the worst grades I ever got, in fact, the only time I ever feared you know, getting a D, certainly the only time I can ever be, remember being happy about getting a C, was in typing class. I'm a freshman in high school, thinking that I'm serious about being a journalist one day. And of course, one of the things you almost have to do that didn't even need to be questioned, I didn't question it, is to learn the basic QWERTY keyboard and to get very skilled at typing. And that includes getting skilled at typing sentences that use every letter of the alphabet, like a quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, or that are designed to leverage your skill up and down the keyboard, not just side to side. And now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their party or their country, or maybe a little bit more honestly, uh, maybe make it all good people instead. So it's not so gender specific, but I didn't do so well in that class for a couple of reasons. First, it's one of those skills that has to be learned with a great deal of practice. So it was less about learning knowledge and more about developing appropriate muscle memory. And I really felt like I had doubts about my ability to actually be a writer because I wasn't that good at reading a written page or a typed page or a book and transcribing quickly with few errors, good words per minute, what was written on the page. The other problem I had was that that class had a female classmate in it who I didn't really know very well, but we both liked music. We were both what I would describe as music nerds. 
and it was just a little bit too easy to talk during the exercises. She was a Rolling Stones fan, and at the time, given that you know classic music quiz, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, I would have landed on the side of the Beatles. It led to lots of interesting conversation with each one of us trying to persuade the other one that the uh, other side was a better point of view. And I bet you that if you really were a music nerd at any point in your life, you probably, at least a rock and roll music nerd, had to answer this question, the Stones or the Beatles, which one is it? We had great conversations and ultimately decided that we could agree on a couple of things, that either the Stones or the Beatles were preferable for us to Elvis Presley, and that we could both agree by taking a step down to a number two or a number three choice and find some common ground in Led Zeppelin. So she might have had the Rolling Stones number one, Led Zeppelin two. I might have had the Beatles number one, Led Zeppelin three, somewhere in that ballpark. But we, we could agree that the greatest common factor of our rock and roll music learnings at the time, because we were just kids learning the music, well, yeah, was Led Zeppelin. So this didn't lead to a great, a great result in typing class. But one of the things that clicked in my head about a year or so later was that as poor as my words per minute were when I was trying to transcribe what somebody else had written on a page, when I was taking um, notes, as it were, trying to learn the skill from the perspective of perhaps what we would have called a secretary back then, somebody who had taken a document and was needing to retype it or taking a set of notes or shorthand and then needing to turn that into a business letter, very much a an old school, by our today's standards, a very old school way of thinking. Today, we have so many people who use a typewriter with a great deal of effectiveness because of the computer age. At that time, I didn't have a computer in my home. What I learned, though, in journalism class, again, about a year or so later, was that I was much more quick and accurate and effective when I was typing whatever was in my head. In other words, if I was writing behind the keyboard, the speed went up and the accuracy went up. I think my teacher back in ninth grade would have doubted that. I think her perspective would be that it's very hard to type at a great deal of accuracy and skill when you don't have something written in front of you that you're sort of transcribing. And that caught me kind of off guard. It's why I think I was surprised by how much I took to typing and how much I rely on it to this very day by simply knowing that I didn't have to write something out longhand first and then turn that into a typewritten document. So one day, with this new typewriter, I'm you know, breaking it in, trying to do some of these typing exercises, and it morphed into a poem. But I think what I find when I read it again is that this poem has a lot to do with inappropriate conversations. It reads like a manifesto, despite the fact that it was really, truly only a typing exercise. And there's at least one different drummer mentioned along the way. Here's the poem, Words Per Minute. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. Now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of their country. Now is the time for Tom Waits to deliver a gravelly-voiced ode to the myth of sexual revolution. Now is the time for Carlos Sara to return to his surrealist roots by redirecting an unknown Luis Buñuel Mexican feature film with faithful script adaptation but full modern financial force brought to the production. Now is the time for American radio stations to transcend the myth of demographically targeted audience programming and acknowledge once and for all that everybody listens to everything, or at least everything that meets the listener's individual standard of excellence. Now is the time for the organized church 
to unite behind the message and indeed the words of Jesus Christ by proclaiming that fear, hatred, and exclusion are not values that will save the world, despite the preaching of a small but politically powerful group of eschatologists. Now is the time for the dominant news media in the United States to give up its outdated mandate on objectivity in the face of growing mistrust among American readers by acknowledging the fact that personal, though not orchestrated, bias penetrates every level of the writing and editing process, from questions asked and not asked, from diction and punctuation included and omitted, and from the very nature of judgments like newsworthiness. Or, granting that I could be wrong, now is the time to just shut up. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. If the poem, Words Per Minute, is a relatively old version of my work, what does recent work sound like? What's that all about? Well, it wasn't maybe three years ago at the most that I was driving to work one day and encountered something that really left a, a scarring mental image for me and I found very difficult to deal with. And I ultimately found that the only way I was going to have enough perspective on what happened to let it go was to write about it. It could have been an essay, could have been a prayer, could have been a short story, although I think I would have had to embrace this too closely to make it a short story. Plus, I recently read a short story that I thought did just as good a job dealing with the question of roadkill by a friend of mine from Canada, and I didn't want to go down that same road, uh, pun intended. Now, what I encountered on the highway entrance ramp was a deer. Not particularly old, but certainly not a fawn by any stretch of the imagination, who had been hit by a car. I'm presuming hit by a car on the entrance ramp, a car that maybe wasn't looking off-road for anything that might be coming in its path, but instead was looking across the traffic to determine the best place to merge on a busy rush hour morning. I must have gotten there just a few minutes later because what I encountered was not a dead animal. And that's what made it so disturbing for me. That's why I couldn't get the image out of my head. The deer was very much alive, with broken legs, perhaps four broken legs, in tremendous pain, but also catatonic, or in a state of shock, with teeth perhaps knocked out because there was blood dripping from the deer's chin. And it was that animation. You know, it's not just a dead body by the side of the road. It's not just a corpse you have to swerve around if you weren't paying good attention and didn't see it to the last minute. It, it, was, it was living, or actually dying, kind of right before my eyes. And so I wrote a poem to try to, at least emotionally, stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Severe concussion, slipping in and out of consciousness. I know nothing about her other than what I saw. A glimpse driving past, a moment frozen in time. So I'll only call her Doe. 
I felt my heart go out to those I don't know before, a primal urge to help, to share the pain or shed a sympathetic tear when no words will suffice. Four broken limbs crouched with no way to stand. Someone had cut the legs right out from underneath her, the doe. I know how that feels, not literally, but the powerless waiting for the inevitable is familiar. Is it right that this couldn't be avoided? You're getting up to speed, that's all. Looking over your shoulder for two lanes of traffic to merge, eyeing the driver just ahead. Bleeding from the mouth, presumably lost teeth. I must have come along only minutes later. Fresh blood was dripping from the doe's chin. Still alive, she was alert, but in shock and considerable pain. Nothing at the scene looked settled. She was looking right at me, staring at eternity as I drove right up to her. Looking right through me would probably be more accurate, perhaps seeing nothing as blood trickled down. Broken jaw, unable to articulate. Entrance ramp brought us face to face. No looking away. No explanations possible. If you could have spoken, how would you have found the words? Kill me now. I simply could not. My friends insist that roadkill is, well, no big deal. Shouldn't let it linger. Being dead don't hurt, no, only dying. I confess, I don't remember the name of that song, but I love the beat. Internal bleeding, slipping away. I wasn't struggling with the doe's death. Only the suffering, the indignity. Cats often sit on their legs like that, voluntarily. No doubt, the doe would have left the road if she could. Nothing could be done. Not about the road cutting through an old forest long gone, replaced with offices and shops. I'm left now, remembering, with no way to stop the bleeding. So a music nerd, writing a poem, in a moment of emotional distress, finds a way to quote the band The English Beat, and uh, the song I Confess, being dead don't hurt and only dying, it's cards on the table time, sometimes it's right to say goodnight. And I think that was what I was trying to do, was to say goodnight to the image. To me, poetry is always going to be personal, even when it's political, and especially when it's religious. But I'm not going to share a poem that deals with the religion angle today. I've shared a little bit from the pop culture perspective and from just personal day-to-day -day life. I've shared both from William S. Burroughs and myself from a political point of view, and a little bit later with a different drummer. Trust me, we'll get to sex. But... On the front of religion, I don't have a poem that I feel like I'm willing to share. And yet I do want to bring up the topic because I think I'm going to ask for a poem. And I'm going to ask for it in a particular way by reaching out, as requested, to the podcast Greetings from Nowhere. Small town quirks from coolness, yeah. We're sending you a warm greetings from nowhere. About small town life in the USA Christina and Nicole got gossip to share And they're sending every one of you Greetings from nowhere Greetings from nowhere Greetings from nowhere 
if you've listened to the show at all, you know from their catchy jingle that the basic theme of it is small town quirks and coolness from a small city in the central part of Washington State. I became familiar only recently with Greetings from Nowhere. The podcast has been around about a week longer than I have, so that's an awfully long time to be you know, following a parallel channel. But somebody who listens to both my show and that show called it to my attention, and I got to tell you, I was a bit taken away by some of the nice things that they had to say on some recent episodes of their show. And listening to further back episodes, I've developed quite an interest in this program. It's well worth your time, and consider this a recommendation for Greetings from Nowhere. But the really specific point I wanted to bring up in reference to the show was an episode from a few weeks back called Not Begging. This was released on April 10th of this year, Greetings from Nowhere, episode 113. And I'll also shout out a different short episode recently from June 18th, Greetings from Nowhere, short number 12, called A Little Bit Churchy, A Little Bit Atheist. It's uh, incredibly consistent with the kinds of things that I like to cover here in Inappropriate Conversations. But back to the Not Begging show. One of the things that they talked about was you're trying to find the right way in a, and again, essentially a non-commercial venture to raise money. Now, on inappropriate conversations, I, I say this, these are words I may eat someday, but I don't think I'm terribly interested in even putting up the donate button. There are other programs that I think, uh, if I view my activities as essentially a hobby, a hobby about which I have a great deal of passion, but a hobby, there are other programs where you know, supporting the podcast is a matter of livelihood. It's a really important piece of the financial puzzle for the, you know, the couple that runs Simply Syndicated, that donations come in. Likewise for Dan Carlin, this is what he does for a living. And for Rick Moyer at Take Him With You, it's what they do for a living. So it's pretty important that they have income, less important for me. And Greetings from Nowhere was clearly struggling with that same sort of thought that don't want this to be a commercial venture, not looking to make a salary off of it. But, you know, every now and then it's important to have a little bit of money to pay for things like hosting. And one of the ideas that Nicole on the show, the two hosts are Nicole and Christina, that Nicole came up with was something called Poem Store. So rather than sending you to the Greetings from Nowhere website, which is a very good website for a podcast directory at uh, www.visitnowhere.com, instead I actually am going to send you somewhere. I'm going to send you to the uh, website for Nicole. It's called ENESVY, NSV, her initials. E-N-E-S-V-Y dot com. And on that site, there's a link off to the right on the right navigation bar for Poem Store. And Poem Store it comes from the inspiration of somebody that I think I've read an interview with. I didn't hear the show on NPR's Fresh Air, but I read an interview with somebody who actually just, you know, streets of San Francisco or streets of somewhere on the West Coast, basically writing poems for donations and writing poems on the spot. He would sit on the street with a typewriter you would come up, offer a donation, give him a topic, and the next thing you know, you'd come back at his prescribed time or wait for your poem to get delivered. Here's what Nicole says on her website at nsv.com. I write no-going-back typewritten poems on your subject at whatever amount you would like to pay. Errors and all, and she provides an example. I love the fact that it's typewritten because, again, back when I was a, a very terrible typer, uh, the worst thing was trying to autocorrect as you went, because back then you'd have to change ribbons, change from the black ribbon to the white ribbon. And I just got in the habit when I was working rough drafts to say, no, if what I've written is wrong enough, I'm just going to you know, scroll back a little bit and XXX out all of it, 
you know, people today who've only written on word processing computers have no idea how easy they've got it compared to what we had to do in order to make sure that even your first draft wasn't completely misleading. Back to Nicole. At this time, proceeds from the poem store will go to support my podcast, Greetings from Nowhere. If you would like a poem through PayPal, send the following to me at gfnpodcast at gmail.com. Number one, whatever amount you'd like to pay. Number two, the subject for your poem. Number three, your mailing address if you would like the original poem sent to you. And number four, your email address if you would prefer a scan sent to you. I will read the poem on the podcast. I will not reveal your name unless you say it's okay. I look forward to writing something unique for you. And then she provides just, you know, one example. So I'm thinking that if I wanted a poem that was something for me, so not from me or necessarily about me, but for me, this poem store idea might be a cool way of doing it. And also a cool way of getting something by donating something that I, that I think deserves the financial support, I guess, for want of a better word. So this poem store idea on this website, uh, that actually redirects me to enesvy.com slash WordPress, you know, that's probably the way I'm going to go with this. And it may be something about, probably not overtly about religion, because I think that if you get to something that's really crucial and true, if you get anywhere near the heart of relationships or, or anywhere near love in a way that isn't sort of sappy or sentimental, uh, the spirituality is going to be there. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with in my head, this has been a challenging week or so for me, is that a high school reunion just came by. Now, I've spoken about high school reunions before, particularly my wife's high school reunion, and I may get to the one and only high school reunion experience I've had later on. I've mentioned, though, a couple of times, and I just found it disappointing because the people that I was most desperate almost to see again don't tend to go to reunions which is ironic because I don't go to reunions either. And perhaps if I have missed them along the way by not participating in the last couple of decades, they may come back to me and say, yeah, well, I'd go, except, you know, I like Greg and he's not going to be there. If he doesn't go to reunions, I'm not going to go to reunions either. But all these pictures have been flooding in of these people. And some of them, despite how much I'm passionate about having a memory and preserving the memory and telling the stories, some of them I barely recognized. And it wasn't just that I didn't recognize them now in their current state. That makes sense. Years have gone by. Decades have gone by. It was that I'm not 100% sure that I really remembered them well from in the past. I've told myself a little conceit that I was really good in high school of moving between social cliques with a great deal of ease. That's true to the extent that there was a subset of cliques I was willing to move in. Clearly, there were people I didn't rub elbows with very often at all. And a lot of them have just gone to my high school reunion. So maybe maybe there's a poem in the works for that. I don't know. At my wife's reunion, the essay Struts was written. And that was, uh, again, more the essay writing style coming out of it than a poem. But there are those moments that come out of nowhere and strike you, almost strike you down and say, you've got to deal with this. I believe that writing poetry can provide a perspective. It can provide a point of view or a way of dealing with things that can't necessarily be captured in any other way. We've heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. But in some ways, a poem uses the same number of words or even a a much smaller number of words to an incredibly different, and I would say, greater effect. 
the last time I talked about poetry, I talked about my very first poetry book purchase, at least the first poetry book purchase from Amazon.com. And today I'm going to cite another poet and another poetry book purchase from Amazon.com back in the early days, at least my early days of internet shopping. This time I'm going to name her as the different drummer. And it's because of one particular poem, but it's also because of her perspective on poetry that I hope to share in a link to a video that she has placed online from her faculty position at the University of Massachusetts. Joyce Passeroff is the author of a poem called The Hardness Scale. But before I get to the poetry, here's a little bit of biography. Joyce Passeroff is a distinguished lecturer in English, College of Liberal Arts, at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Her areas of expertise include creative writing and 20th century American poetry. She got her Master's of Fine Arts degree from the University of California at Irvine. Reading from the university's bio, Pesaroff's four books of poems are The Hardness Scale, A Dog in the Lifeboat, Mortal Education, and Eastern Mountain Time. She has been the coordinating editor, managing editor, and associate poetry editor of Plowshares and edited the Plowshares Poetry Reader, Robert Bly, When Sleepers Awake, and Simply Lasting, Writers on Jane Kenyon. She is the winner of grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Artist Foundation, and of the Pushcart Prize. Her poems and reviews have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, Agni, Plowshares, Southern Review, New York Times Book Review, the Women's Review of Books, and the online journal, Slate. There's a Vimeo post, again, that I intend to share from uh, Mass Poetry, which I'm assuming is Massachusetts poetry, although it's a nice pun either way, where Pesaroff talks a little bit about poetry and poetry writing, clearly agreeing with me that the writer reading their own work, or at the very least, poetry being read aloud, is important and different in many ways from poetry being read, or the idea of studying poetry like you would any other text in an English classroom. If the only time you've experienced the poetry of people like you know, T.S. Eliot, or for that matter, William, William Shakespeare, is by reading it in a book and taking an exam in an English class, you need to revisit it. And one of the things you should do along the way is read it aloud. The thing that I enjoy most about this particular video link, which again, I hope is still available when I link to it, is that she reads from her own poem, The Hardness Scale. But I intend to do the same right here and right now, not dwelling on too many other details of Pesaroff as a different drummer, because it can get tricky when I'm dealing with different drummers who are authors. Unlike performers, like musicians, they don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of celebrity information about them. Unless you've you know, studied their work, you really wouldn't have much to go on. But in this case, the work I want to refer to in particular is the hardness scale. And I'm going to get, when I'm done, to the perhaps quite obvious point that there's a great deal of wisdom and insight and pathos that can be shared even about perhaps inherently sexual or sexually related subjects through the art of poetry. Here is The Hardness Scale by Joyce Pesaroff. The Hardness Scale Diamonds are forever, so I gave you quartz, which is number seven on the hardness scale. And it's hard enough to get to know anybody these days, if only to scratch the surface. And quartz will scratch six other mineral surfaces. It will scratch glass. It will scratch gold. It will even scratch your eyes out one morning. You can't be too careful. Diamonds are industrial. 
so I bought a ring of topaz, which is number eight on the hardness scale. I wear it on my right hand, the way it was supposed to be, right? No tears and fewer regrets, for reasons smooth and clear as glass. Topaz will scratch glass. It will scratch your quartz and all your radio crystals. You'll have to be silent the rest of your days, not to mention your nights. Not to mention the night you ran away, very drunk, very, very drunk, and you tried to cross the border, but couldn't make it across the lake. Stirring up geysers with the oars, you drove the red canoe in circles, tried to pole it, but your left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. You fell asleep and let everyone know it when you woke up. In a gin-soaked morning, hair of the dog, you went hunting for geese, shot three lake trout in violation of the game laws, told me to clean them, and then my eyes were as bright as sapphires, which is number nine on the hardness scale. A sapphire will cut a pearl. It will cut stainless steel. It will cut vinyl and mylar, and will probably cut a record this fall to be released on an obscure label known only to aficionados. I will buy a copy. I may buy you a copy, depending on how your tastes have changed. I will buy copies for my friends. We'll get a new needle, a diamond needle, which is number 10 on the hardness scale, and will cut anything. It will cut wood and mortar, plaster and iron. It will cut the sapphires in my eyes, and I will bleed blind as 4 a.m. in the subways when even degenerates are dreaming. Blind as the time you shut up the room with a new hunting rifle, blind drunk as you were. You were number 11 on the hardness scale later that night, apologetic, as you worked your way up slowly from the knees, and you worked your way down from the open-throated blouse. Diamonds are forever, so I give you softer things. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant Golf Clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com As you worked your way up slowly from the knees and you worked your way down from the open-throated blouse. 
one of the reasons that I really want you to listen to the clip with the poet reading her own work that I'll try to link online is that this is a poem meant to be read by a woman. And I recognize that. But to me, the poem has power, even if you can imagine yourself in the other person's shoes, or in this case, the other gender's shoes inside this relationship and make no bones about it. This is not a poem that could have been studied in my high school, even by the most select group of honors English students in an honors English class. This one I encountered in college, which ironically is exactly where it was written. It was the right point in time for me to hear these words and it tied in completely with my perspective that one of the biggest areas of opportunity in our society one of the areas where I think we still have the greatest amount of misunderstanding is in the relationship of gender and sexuality to interpersonal relationships. We have problems in our society where we make assumptions about sex and tradition that we probably should not. I've mentioned before uh, how uncomfortable it is to have people suggest that it's, uh, it's impossible for men and women to be friends. Well, in some cases, it's impossible for men and women to be a couple either. We just have to deal with that. And when we run into particularly difficult cases, we don't necessarily have the words to express it in ways that are concrete. The abstract can be very helpful. Here, Joyce Pesseroff takes the hardness scale and bends it to her will. My copy of the book, The Hardness Scale, is part of the Carnegie Mellon Classic Contemporary Series. I have a note here about a first Carnegie Mellon University Press edition from January 2000. Pesseroff's book includes 69 poems, and part of me thinks there's a pun in there. I meant to mention today on the show several things, and I'm wondering if I got it all done. I meant to mention Greetings from Nowhere and the Poem Store through um, Nicole's site, NSV, and I meant to shout out for Stitcher Smart Radio and to tell you that I now have a different URL, my own URL, for this particular show at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I also can be reached, as always, at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And there's a Facebook page for the podcast under Inappropriate Conversations. Also, if you're on Twitter, my Twitter ID is IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word. 